in May of 1961 that some of you might remember. Some were certainly around and of age at the time to remember what it was like to hear those words or maybe to read about that challenge from President Kennedy. And it was in July of 1969 that that vision was realized, that uh, we did, in fact, put two men on the moon. And then subsequently, in the years after that, many more made the same journey. President Kennedy would go on to say that he, he believed that the, that the nation had all the resources and talents that it needed in order to accomplish that particular mission that it needed in order to fulfill that vision that he and others had laid out. And yet it wasn't going to be easy. It was going to take a lot of money, (laughs) millions and millions of dollars. It would take new technologies that had not been invented. It would take a lot of hours and manpower, and it would take some failure, and it would take a lot of hope and a lot of perseverance, and yet that's exactly what was put into that project. And when Apollo 11 landed on the moon and Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin ran around on the moon. All of those dreams finally were realized. I'm curious how many of you in 1969 were around to remember that lunar landing. Absolutely. Now, it's, it's okay. There's no shame in admitting that now, all right, that you were around in 1969. It was a crazy time, but also a very intriguing time when we landed on the moon. <clears throat> and President Kennedy and our country were prompted uh, by many things to accomplish that kind of mission. We were in the middle, of course, of the, the Cold War. The Soviets had launched Sputnik not long before that, and, and we were in a race to, to figure out who would be the supreme world power. And the race to space was certainly part of that. Uh, what an incredible vision that was laid out. Uh, we, uh, we had only had one man so far, Alan Shepard, in a suborbital uh, orbit orbit, uh, how would you say, the orbital um, flight um, to space. We had not put anyone in orbit. We just just sort of launched him up and he came back down. And yet a month or so later, President Kennedy says, we're going to the moon. By the end of this decade, by the way, what an incredible vision to see what could be, to see what had not been done, and, and to do what had to be done in order to get there. Obviously, it's a new year this morning. I would imagine that if you're like me, you've spent some time, whether you believe in making New Year's resolutions or you believe that the only resolution you should make is to make no resolution, I'm not sure, but you've probably spent at least some time in reflection, looking back on what 2011 was like, the high points, the low points, the joyful moments, the sad moments, the times of challenge, the times of triumph. And you look forward to a new year and you wonder, what will this year be like? And maybe you have some ideas and some hopes and dreams and some goals and visions of what you want your life to be like in 2012. And this morning, I really hope to leave you with with something very simple that you can take and you can begin to apply to every area of your life, a very simple truth, a very simple challenge that I believe will will put you on the path of being the person God wants you to be in 2012. You get a vision of your life and what you would like it to be this year. I wonder if it matches your reality right now. And if it doesn't, and if you understand that maybe you are not the person that God would have you to be right now in this moment, 
And maybe this morning you would begin to apply this principle and get from where you are to where God wants you to be. How can God's vision for your life become a reality this year? That's what I want to address this morning. We'll look at a group of people this morning that you should be very familiar with. They are the story of the Old Testament. We'll look at the Israelites and where they were. We'll then evaluate where we are. And we'll see where God wants us to be and how can we formulate a strategy to get to where God wants us to be. So if you've got your Bible, we're going to focus on one passage of Scripture, but I want to start a little bit before that. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12, first book in the Bible, chapter 12. We'll see this morning, as we fast forward just a little bit in a second, a people whose reality did not match the vision that God had given them. Their reality did not match up with what they had anticipated life would be like. We get the beginning of their story in Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. The Lord said to Abram, who would later, of course, become Abraham, Go out from your land, your relatives, and your father's house, to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who treat you with contempt. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. In verse 4, so Abraham went. As the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he left Haran. We get here the beginning of Israel, the nation of Israel. We see their purpose and, and their mission and, and all of these things. We'll see this morning where they were, where we are, and where God wants us to be. On the back of your bulletin, you're going to get all but just a couple. All right, I know some of you like to just follow along, but you're going to get all but just a couple right off the bat. I don't know if you can handle it. It's going to be like drinking from a fire hydrant, but, but get ready. All right? So, so you ready? Let's put, this on, put it on the screen. I'm going to give you the, all, all of them all at once. And what we're going to do is we're going to work through each of these. All right, go ahead. There we go. Okay. We're going to work through each of these. I want you to write down purpose, mission, vision, reality, strategy, tactics. We're going to see in the story of the Israelites their purpose, their mission, their vision, their reality, their strategy, their tactics. We'll see the results of all of that, where they were. We'll then evaluate where we are, our purpose, our mission, our vision, our reality, our strategy, our tactics. And then we'll compare that with God's purpose for us, with His mission, His vision. His strategy, his tactics. So I want you to have all of those down. You may want to kind of form some columns and make some notes and all that you want. Maybe you want to scribble those down on your bulletin or there in your Bible. But we get the idea in Genesis chapter 12 that their purpose, their purpose was to be a great nation for God's glory. The reason that Israel was created, their purpose, it says here, I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I'll make your name great and you will be a blessing. They are created for God's glory, created to be a great nation for God's glory. He had chosen them to be the means of His blessing for all the earth, and through them He would pour out His love, His grace on all people. They were to love and to enjoy Him to the point that other nations would take note, that they would be drawn to the God of Israel. And their purpose for existence was to live for the glory of God in very tangible in very meaningful ways. 
Their spiritual existence was to have meaning in their physical lives and as a nation. Their purpose was to be great for God's glory. Their mission was to be a blessing to the world. Their purpose related to God. Their mission related to others. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who treat you with contempt. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Here's the promise to Abram and the mission for the nation of Israel. As God's people, they would extend the love and the justice of God to all the people around them. Of course, we know that Jesus, the Savior of the world, would eventually come through this line and certainly... We cannot deny that He is the ultimate blessing for the world. Their purpose, to glorify God. Their mission, to be a blessing. And then God gives them the vision. Go out from your land, your relatives, and your father's house to the land I will show you. God gives Abram this vision of the the land that God has promised. We know it as the promised land. Land of Canaan. A land that we'll see in a few moments was beyond all that they had experienced, all that the nation ever wanted was was bottled up in this one piece of land that they were promised from God. And this meant leaving, of course, Abram's current land, his father's house, not something that was done quite often in these days. So God's vision for the Israelites began with Abraham and him leaving everything that was familiar to him and going in a different direction. Now, if you fast forward in the story, you realize that God says, I will make you into a great nation. And he begins to do that, the story of Genesis. And then by Exodus, here we have this nation, very populated. And God has, uh, has allowed them to go into slavery in Egypt. Their disobedience leads to this, and they wind up in slavery, and, and um, they're, they're captured, and, and the Pharaoh has his hand on them, and God miraculously leads them out. And yet, then they face... Beginning in Numbers, as you'll see, I want you to turn there. In Numbers, maybe you haven't had a sermon from Numbers in a while, but we're going to look there. It is a book in the Bible. You can preach from it. It's okay. And some of you are saying, well, at least it's not Leviticus this morning. My goodness, I've read that. I don't know what to think about that. We'll get there. But Numbers, okay, so we have slavery. We have the Exodus. And then we have their current reality. So we see their purpose. We see their, their mission that God has given them. We, we see the vision of this promised land, this, this land that the Bible would say is flowing with milk and honey, this incredibly great land. And then we see their reality. Look in Numbers chapter 11. Numbers chapter 11. Here they are. They've been uh, escaped from slavery for a little while now. They are trekking toward the promised land. And they've been out in the wilderness now for just a little while. And we come to chapter 11 of Numbers Verse 1, now the people began complaining openly before the Lord about hardship. When the Lord heard, his anger burned. Well, that's not a good thing because the next part of this indicates why. And the fire from the Lord blazed among them and consumed the outskirts of the camp. The people cried out to Moses and he prayed to the Lord and the fire died down. So that place was named Taberah because the Lord's fire had blazed among them. Contemptible people among them had a strong craving for other food. The Israelites cried again and said, Who will feed us meat? We remember, now pay attention to this, we remember the free fish we ate in Egypt, along with the cucumbers, melons, leeks, onions, and garlic. But now our appetite is gone. There's nothing to look at but this manna that they had been given from God. The manna resembled coriander seed, and its appearance was like that of bedellum. 
The people walked around and gathered. They, uh, they, they ground it on a pair of grinding stones and crushed it in mortar. And they boiled it in a cooking pot and shaped it into cakes. It looked like a pastry cooked with the finest oil. When the dew fell on the camp at night, the manna would fall from it, fall with it. rather. Moses heard the people, family after family, crying at the entrance of their tents. The Lord was very angry. Moses was also provoked. So Moses asked the Lord, here's their reality. All right, picture this. They're in the wilderness. They've left Egypt. They're out of slavery, and yet times have gotten tough. Moses has led them to follow the Lord, and now they're facing some hardship, it says. They complain to Moses, crying out to him, all we have is this stupid manna. We don't want any more of it. It's the same meal every day, every meal. Give us something different. God's angry with them. Moses is provoked. Moses asked the Lord, verse 11, Why have you brought such trouble on your servant? He's talking about himself. Why are you angry with me? And why do you burden me with all these people? Did I conceive all these people? Did I give birth to them so you should tell me, carry them at your breast as a nursing woman carries a baby to the land you swore to give to their fathers? Where can I get meat to give all these people? For they are crying to me, give us meat to eat. I can't carry all these people by myself. They're too much for me. In verse 15, he goes on to say, if you're going to treat me like this, please kill me right now. You talk about a leader who's been discouraged. My goodness. Here he is saying, God, if this is the way that it's going to be, you just take me out. I don't want any part of this. The reality did not match the vision that God had given them. Here they are expecting to go immediately from the exodus into the promised land. They face this interim time known as the wilderness. They're sort of at a crossroads. They complain. Lots of hardship. They're lacking their resources they need. They know it's a long and difficult road to the promised land. and All they see is the wilderness around them. And they see, yeah, maybe God is taking care of us a little bit. But you know what? It's not quite what we expected. We want more. There's confusion, there's anger, they're very frustrated, reality not matching the vision that God had given them, and now they are in the wilderness, and even Moses, this great man of God as he would be known, says, Lord, <laughs> I'm done, forget it, I don't want any part of this, kill me now, <laughs> take me out, and they formulate a, a, a strategy as they look and approach this promised land, they formulate a strategy as far as how they're going to get out of the wilderness. Look in chapter 13. They realize that where they are doesn't match where God has told them they need to be. And so they decide that they are going to march forward and take the promised land as God has told them. Verse, uh, chapter 13, verse 1. Here they are at the, the, the promised land, and, and it says this, The Lord spoke to Moses, Send men to scout out the land of Canaan I am giving to the Israelites. Send one man who was a leader among them from each of their ancestral tribes. Moses sent them from the wilderness of Paran at the Lord's command. All the, all the men were leaders in Israel, and, and, and you get a list of their names. Look at, verse, uh, look at verse 17. When Moses sent them to scout out the land, he told them, Get up this way to, uh, to the Negev, Go up this way, rather, to the Negev. Then go up to the end of the hill country. See what the land is like, and whether the people who, are live, who live there are strong or weak, few or many. So go check it out. Scouting report. We need to know who our enemy is. Is the land they live in good or bad? Are the cities they live in encampments or fortifications? Is the land fertile or unproductive? 
Are there trees in it or not? Be courageous. Bring back some of the fruit from the land. It was the season for the first ripe grapes. So, verse 21, they went up and scouted the land from the wilderness of Zin as far as Rehob to the entrance of Hamath. They went up through the Negev and came to Hebron, Rahimun, Sheshai, Talmai, the descendants of Anak, were living. Hebron was built seven years before Zoan in Egypt. When they came to the valley of Eskel, they cut down a branch with a single cluster of grapes, which was carried on a pole by two men. They also took some pomegranates and figs. This place was called the Valley of Eskel because of the cluster of grapes the Israelites cut there. At the end of 40 days, they returned from scouting the land. They give their report. The men went back to Moses, Aaron, and the entire Israelite community in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. They brought back a report for them and the whole community, and they showed them the fruit of the land. They reported to Moses, We went into the land where you sent us. Indeed, it is flowing with milk and honey, and here's some of its fruit. It's exactly what God said it would be. God's vision is incredible, they say. Look at, look at the land. Yes, it's perfect. However, the people living in the land are strong, and the cities are large and fortified. We also saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites are living in the land of the Negev. The Hittites, Jebusites, and Amorites live in the hill country, and the Canaanites live by the sea along the Jordan. Their, their strategy was to, to send out some spies. Scout out the land. Let's see if God's vision, let's get a taste of it and figure out, is this really, is this really what God has called us to do? What's it like? And they report back and they see, yeah, it's perfect, it's beautiful, it's lovely. We know it'll be a blessing, but I don't think it can happen. Yeah, it's great, but it's just sort of that far-off ideal that I, it seems so impossible, so beyond what God really could do in us. Those people there, they're, 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 they're just they're impossible to, to defeat. Verse 30, Caleb quieted the people in the presence of Moses and said, We must go up and take possession of the land, because we can certainly conquer it. Here's the voice of faith. But the men who had gone up with him responded, We can't go up against the people because they're stronger than we are. So they gave a negative report to the Israelites about the land they had scouted. The land we passed through to explore is one that devours its inhabitants. And all the people we saw in it are men of great size. The end of verse 33, To ourselves we seem like grasshoppers and we must have seemed the same to them. Their strategy was to send out scouts, figure out, is God's vision for us really what he said it was? They come back with a report that says, you know what, it's, it's wonderful, but there's no way. There's no way in the world we can accomplish this. Their strategy was to ignore God's promise. If you look in, in verse uh, 1 of chapter 13 again, send out men, or chapter 2, verse 2 rather, send out men to scout out the land of Canaan, I am giving to the Israelites. The Lord said, here it is, I'm giving it to you. It wasn't as if they had to say, well, I'm not sure, has God really said this? God said, I'm giving it to you. Just go look at it. You figure out what it's like, kind of get a game plan together, understand what you've got to do in order to, to realize the vision, but I'm giving it to you, it's yours. People come back and they say, I'm, I'm not so sure. Ignoring what God had said. Ignoring the leadership of a man like Caleb, who a man of faith. We must go and take possession because we can certainly conquer it. You ever been around somebody like that who's, who maybe is in the minority but says, we can do this. 
possible. It can happen. You ever have those people in your lives who are the encouragers and say, no matter what your reality looks like right now, God can see you through. He can give you victory. The temptation is to be just like these Israelites who said, well, (laughs) we tend to agree with these guys over here who paint this picture of, of fear and emotion that needs to be our guide. And we'll see in a minute how that works out for them. Their strategy was was different than what God said to do. Their tactics were to live by doubt, fear, to whine, (laughs) complain. And then in verse 1 of chapter 14, it gets worse. Then the whole community broke into loud cries, and the people wept that night. All the Israelites complained about Moses and Aaron. The whole community told them, If only we had died in the land of Egypt, or if only we had died in this wilderness... Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to die by the sword? Our wives and little children will become plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? Are you kidding me? So they said to one another, let's appoint a leader and go back to Egypt. Their tactics. Let's go back to slavery. Let's not realize what God has for us, both in our lives and as a nation. Let's not realize that. Let's go back to where we kind of knew the way that it was, and let's ignore what God has for us. They emphasize the giants and the barriers and the obstacles that are going to be in their pathway. In the meantime, they forget how awful Egypt was. They talk about the free fish and all the fruit they had and forget the whip that was cracked on their back all the time. Their results are given to us in verse 11, beginning verse 11 of chapter 14. The Lord said to Moses, How long will these people despise me? How long will they not trust in me, despite all the signs I have performed among them? I will strike them with a plague and destroy them. Then I will make you into a greater and mightier nation than they are. God says, I'm starting over. (laughs) These folks aren't going to follow me. Forget it. Moses, we're going on. But Moses replied to the Lord, The Egyptians will hear about it. For by your strength you brought this people from them. They will tell it to the inhabitants of this land. They've heard that you, Lord, are among these people, how you, Lord, are seen face to face, how your cloud stands over them, and how you go before them in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. If you kill this people with a single blow, the nations that have heard of your fame will declare, since the Lord wasn't able to bring his people into the land he swore to give them, he has slaughtered them in the wilderness. Moses goes on to say, Lord, hold on. Please don't do that. Please, Lord, I I beg of you. Please. Don't destroy this people. We we see God's anger poured out on the Israelites. And then in verse 20, he says, the Lord responds to Moses, I have pardoned them as you have requested. Yet surely as I live, the Lord swears on himself, and as the whole earth is filled with the Lord's glory, none of the men who have seen my glory and the signs I performed in Egypt and in the wilderness and and have tested me these ten times and did not obey me, will ever see the land I swore to give to their fathers. None of them who have despised me will see it. But since my servant Caleb has a different spirit and followed me completely, I will bring him into the land where he has gone and his descendants will inherit it. The Lord spoke to Moses and he goes on and he tells them, maybe you know the story, verse 32, but as for you, talking to the people, your corpses will fall in this wilderness. Your children will be shepherds in the wilderness for 40 years and bear the penalty for your acts of unfaithfulness until all your corpses lie scattered in the wilderness. 
You will bear the consequences of your sin 40 years based on the number of 40 days that you scouted the land, a year for each day. Wow. God had set before them a a promised land, a vision that they were to accomplish, and they turned it down. They said, no, we don't want any part of that. As individuals, as a nation, they said, no, 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 it's too difficult to accomplish. And the Lord said, fine. The nation will still enter the promised land, but those who, those of you who were with these ten men and not with Joshua and Caleb, it's not going to be you. In verse four, uh, chapter 14, verse 2, they said, if only we had died in the desert. And God says, you'll get your wish. If we turn the attention toward us as individuals, toward you and me, and we think about our current purpose, why, why have we been placed on this earth? The Israelites were given their purpose there in Genesis 12, and our purpose needs to be defined as well. What is your purpose? Think about that. Maybe the new year dawns. Why am I here? <laughs> why has God left me here after maybe all I've been through or the hard times? Why, why am I here? Do you, even, do you even know what it is? I would venture to say that some in here are very clear on what their purpose is in life, and some are not. Some would be willing and honest and open and admit, you know what, I, I can tell you what my purpose is. You might not want to hear it, but I'll tell you what it is. My purpose is this, this, and this. Some would have to say my purpose is really directed toward me. My purpose is about me and my life and what I want. What about your, your current mission? Relates to how you're going to accomplish that purpose. What are you doing about why you're here? If your purpose is about why you exist, then your mission, of course, gives legs to it, puts it into practice. What about your current vision? What do you have in mind that your life will look like in the coming weeks and months and years? What do you want your life to be? If you're honest, if I were to ask you on your bulletin there to draw a just some symbols of what you want your life to be about. What, what would the picture look like? For some, we'd have to put a big dollar sign there. Well, give me some more. For others, we'd draw little symbols relating to home or to family or whatever it may be. What are your dreams, your goals, for your work, for your family, your marriage, your future? for your finances, for how you'll use the talents and abilities God has given you. What's your vision for all of that? And then if you were honest, what would you say your current reality is? You may find yourself just like these Israelites in Numbers 13 and 14, trying to seek out what God wants you to do, but you're in the wilderness. And if you're not there right now, I can promise you this, not because I'm some prophet, but just because this is the way life is, that you'll be there at some point this next year. You look back at 2011, you may have started it with a bang. How exciting it was to begin a new year. And you look back and you see the times of wilderness where you just were confused and maybe angry at where God had taken you. If you're not there now, some of us are, and you will be at some point. It's just life. God has not promised us that we'll never have those times. Are you confused? Are you angry? Maybe searching? 
Maybe you're to the point of complaining and whining (laughs) to God about where you are. Maybe you're thinking life is just too hard. Maybe you're feeling like these Israelites as if God has forgotten you, that he's not for you anymore, and it's best just to turn and go a different way. Maybe in your work or where you live or what you're studying in school or in your relationships and your marriage and your finances, your mentality, your, your attitude or the sins that you're caught up in, you realize that your reality is very different from what you want your life to be. But if you evaluate your current strategy, I wonder what your guide is. What's your game plan to accomplish the vision that you have for your life? Maybe you, you would think of it as a map that gets you from point A to point B. We know this time of year, many people would say, well, my, my resolution for 2012 is to get in shape. That's a good strategy. Get in shape. I, I'm going to be a better spouse. I'm going to have a better marriage. I'm going to be a better parent. I'm going to get more involved with the church. This year, I'm going to do this or do that. Or maybe I'm going to know a little more about the Bible. Or I'm going to try to make a little more money this year to be a little more financially secure or maybe this year it's on your mind. I'm, I'm going to prepare for, for what I know will come, my eventual departure from this world. What is your strategy? What, what's your game plan, your map for how you're going to get to the place where you believe you want to be? And then what are your current tactics? The strategy is overarching. The tactics are what you do every day that accomplish the goals and dreams. What are you filling your mind with? What are you filling your life, your family, your marriage, your schedule with? What steps are you taking to get to where you believe God wants you to be? You think about the New Year's resolution of getting in shape. It's a good strategy. It's going to help you be healthier. But you realize, of course, that it means nothing unless you tactically go to the gym and join. And that costs money. So you've got a plan for that. And then unless you tactically say, I'm going to build into my schedule priority time to do those workouts. You say, well, I'm going to get myself in shape. Well, that's good. How are you going to do that? Those are the tactics. Well, every day at this time, I'm going to do this. These will be the workouts. The same is true in every area of your life. You can have a great strategy. But unless you put legs to it and teeth on it, you'll never accomplish it. If you think about your strategy and your tactics, what are the results that those things are producing right now in your life? What would happen if you stayed on the same path you're on for the next 10 years? Think about it. You can project out. If you stayed on the same path, the same pattern of life, the same strategy, same tactics, in 10 years, what would be the result? Or maybe, maybe just another five years. Or maybe just a year or six months or a month or a week. If you continued down the same path, what would it be? I'm not saying it would necessarily be negative, but just what would it be? If it is negative, who will be destroyed in the process? What will, will be destroyed? Who will be hurt? When it's all said and done, what will God have to say about the strategy and tactics with which you approach life? What ground will be lost in your life? I pray that you're not in denial about the path that you're on, but you can wisely evaluate, if I continue down this road, this is what my life will look like in a week, in a month, in a year five years and ten years this is what it will be maybe you right now are in a wilderness time but God has put before you a a promised land 
a vision of what your life can look like, and maybe you stand and you say, I'm not sure I want to go through the pain and the changes that it will require. Maybe you find yourself just like the Israelites. That's where maybe you currently are. And I want to close by helping us evaluate not just where we are, because that can be kind of depressing. Oh, it's a happy new year, isn't it? Oh, golly, I just feel awful leaving church today. Oh, thanks a lot. But let's, let's, we've evaluated where the Israelites were and where we are, but where would God have us be? What's his purpose for us? I honestly believe, and the scripture is full of, of references and examples and stories about this, that because God has revealed himself to us, both in creation and through the scripture, that his purpose for us involves knowing him. Knowing him. He's revealed himself to us to be known. Part of our purpose is to know him. I believe that also because he's described as a loving father who longs to bless his children, that our purpose also includes enjoying him. Some of us know God, but we don't enjoy anything about him. He's a mean ogre to us, a judge, just pounding his fist at us. But as a loving father, he wants us to enjoy him. Because he commands praise from his creation, I believe that he that part of our purpose is to glorify him, to know him, to enjoy him, to glorify him. What if you let that purpose be your guide in all that you said and did and thought about and dreamed about and hoped for this next year? To know God more. To enjoy him more deeply. To glorify him in all areas of life. I'll tell you, that can't be accomplished merely by going to church. And you say, well, you're the pastor. Yes, I am. But it can't be accomplished merely by going to church. We have a wonderful church, but it can't be accomplished just by being a part of a wonderful church. It can't be accomplished. You can't know God, can't enjoy Him, can't glorify Him just by being a good person or staying out of trouble or making a good contribution to society. The only way that you can know God, that you can enjoy God, that you can glorify Him is through His Son, Jesus Christ. That's it. Everything else is an extension of that. He is the core. He is the center. And unless your life is centered on Jesus Christ, your purpose is far from what God would have it to be because you cannot accomplish the purpose God has created you for apart from Jesus Christ. You can't do it. You can try And in a year, two years, five years, ten years, come back and we'll evaluate how did that work out. Apart from Jesus Christ, it cannot happen. His death and His resurrection are the only means that we have to come to a saving knowledge of of God. That we have to truly enjoy Him having the wrath of God on our sin removed from us for all eternity. The only way to glorify Him is by faith in Jesus Christ. Your purpose, to know Him, to enjoy Him glorify him and he's given us a mission as believers in jesus christ the bible talks about it to love others to make disciples the bible says to to help others in their journey to become more like jesus christ that mission is for every christian for every church our mission in life is not about you and me it's not about us it's about others our purpose is directed toward god our mission directed toward other people Now that flies in the face of what you learn in the world, what you're taught in school, what you're taught often in the church, what you're taught maybe even in your own family. 
We're taught that we are to let no one run over us in the world, but you know what God says? Die to yourself. We often in the church celebrate when a sinner gets what's coming to him. (laughs) The Bible says we're to lovingly reach that person with the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's an incredible mission God has given us, and I really believe that few churches and few individuals ever really fulfill the mission God has given them. God has a vision for you as well. John 10.10 says that, that He wants us to have life to the fullest. Does that mean everything you had on your Christmas list And the more you put on it, the more you're going to get. No, no, that's not what he's talking about. But life to the fullest in a way that that humans that don't know Jesus can't explain. He says he, he wants you to have peace beyond understanding. To have all of the fruit of God's Spirit living inside of you. That's his vision for you. I pray this, this year, honestly, that you would be a person of vision. God's vision for your life, for this church, for your job, for your family, your marriage, all that's involved. God's strategy for you, and, and you'll see these are the only two blanks that you still have to fill in. This is what I want to give you and leave you with today is a simple challenge. A very simple thing you can remember to say, what? What's my strategy to become the person God wants me to be this year? As we look at Numbers 13 and 14, what's the one thing they didn't do? And then you flip it around, here's our strategy, to believe and obey the Word of God. Believe and obey the Word of God. So that's not very profound. No, it's not. (laughs) It's pretty simple. But there are few, very few of us in here who truly believe the Word of God. Truly believe it. I'm not saying you understand, well, that's true. I'm saying you believe it. When God says, I've given you the land, you believe He's given you the land, and as a result of your belief in God's Word, you obey it. You talk about something that will radically change your life, far more than getting yourself in shape, far more than any New Year's resolution that you can make. If you this year, beginning today, would simply say, Each and every day that I wake up, I will believe and I will obey the Word of God. I cannot guarantee you that it will lead you out of the wilderness at the exact time you're ready to come out. But I can guarantee you this, that even in your wilderness time, if you believe and obey the Word of God, you will experience His presence and you will experience His blessing even in the midst of a dry and barren experience in your life. I wonder what would be the result if you applied that strategy to every area of your life, to all of your current realities, to the job that you don't like, to the people you work with that you can't stand to be around, to the family member that gives you a hard time, to your marriage that maybe seems as if it's falling apart, to the relationship with your children that's grown distant, or that you're confused on what to do and how to approach it. To the parents, young people, that you don't want to respect and obey. To the spouse who's become more like a roommate than a lover. To the grandchildren that look to you with admiration. To the lost people in our community who are bound for hell, apart from Jesus Christ. What if... 
What if you as an individual, you as a family, we as a church, made it our goal and our strategy this year to believe and obey the Word of God in every area? I believe even if you stayed in a wilderness time, you'd experience the cloud and the fire of God's presence. And I also believe that there would be many who would be led from that wilderness experience into a promised land, God's vision for you. But you're going to have to do it through God's tactics of walking by faith, of following godly and faith-filled people. You need to expect some obstacles. They'll be there, and you keep going. You fight for God's vision in your life. and You maintain that strategy, doing whatever it takes to be the kind of person God wants you to be by believing and obeying the Word of God. What will you do in your current wilderness? Or in the wilderness you're sure to face? What will you do when your reality doesn't match the vision God has placed before you and your expectations are unmet? You can whine, you can complain, you can kick and scream, <laughs> throw a fit. All of those things, you can certainly do them. You can be confused, you can be angry, you can be hurt, you can ignore what God has put before you. You can argue with God that the pain isn't worth what you'll experience on the other side. Or, we take the story and this negative example of the Israelites, you can do the opposite of what they did. And you can believe and obey the Word of God, giving your life completely to Jesus, trusting Him fully in 2012. Believe and obey the Word of God. It's the only way through and out of the wilderness time that you might experience. Let's pray together. As we draw to a close this morning, I'd love to invite you during song of invitation in just a moment maybe you would need to be so bold as to get get up from your seat and come and spend a moment here in prayer and say Lord this year on this day this first day of 2012 I, I am committing to a new strategy Lord I want to live for your purpose I want to fulfill your mission I want to realize your vision and my strategy to do that will simply be to believe and obey the word of God and Lord, I'll trust you with the results of all that. Maybe you would come and you would pray on your knees before the Lord with the support of a church family to say, that's my commitment this year. Maybe you're not ready to leave your seat and understand. Maybe you'd pray that right there in your pew. Maybe your commitment to the Lord would be a first time, one of faith in Jesus Christ, receiving His free gift of salvation. The only way you can fulfill your purpose. The only way you can know God and enjoy Him and glorify Him. Pray that you, that you not leave today without having responded to the Lord in the way that He is calling you to do right here in this moment. Heavenly Father, please give us boldness and courage to believe You, to obey You. We thank You, Lord, even for a, a negative example in the Scripture of folks who who refuse to do those things. Lord, may we be individuals, may we be a church that believes and obeys the Word of God in all areas. Lord, may that be so in our lives. 
I pray for those who need to make a commitment to you this morning, maybe one of faith for the very first time. Maybe one that says, Lord, this year, I believe you. I'll obey you. I pray you give them boldness this morning as we close. In Jesus' name.